Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Fight hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over 100 years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Institute for Oral History, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, Prohibition and Waco. They would oftentimes stand outside of saloons and sing hymns and kind of guilt men into either <laughs> not going in or leaving. For our second ever live podcast recording, the Dr. Pepper Museum hosted us to talk about Prohibition in the South. It was all to kick off their Prohibition exhibit, Spirited. Catch the exhibit until January the 7th at the Dr. Pepper Museum. He had a, a walking cane that was hollowed out and uh, he kept alcohol, kept whiskey down in it. <laughs> Would take breaks during his sermon and unscrew the top and lift this big cane up and uh, take a swig. And now, let's cut to the live recording where we introduce our guests. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio. All right, well, welcome to our second ever live podcast recording of the Waco History Podcast. Uh, I'm Randy Lane. This is Stephen Sloan over here. Good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming. And we got a couple of guests. Why don't you guys introduce yourself? We'll start with Joe. I'm Joe Coker. I teach in the religion department at Baylor University. My name is Andrew Anderson. I'm the front house manager for Balconies Distilling. All right, what are we talking about tonight, Stephen? Well, so, so essentially they have the same job. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just really different job. So Prohibition, we are here because the Dr. Pepper Museum, and as you hear this podcast, I would encourage you to come and see the exhibit. They have a National Endowment for the Humanities touring exhibit on Prohibition. And so we're here at the opening, and we're here to talk about Prohibition from all sorts of different angles. And we've already been offered a drink. <laughs> so prohibition ended if you're just getting the news. All right. Well, to set the stage, I thought we'd start with Joe and kind of, can you tell me what led to prohibition and kind of what the area, especially like Waco in the South, looked like at that point? Well, it depends how far back you want to go. Let's go for like what led to prohibition. Let's just start with that so people kind of have an idea of where we're starting. Well, prohibition grew out of the temperance movement. So it starts off as the temperance movement, meaning an effort to try to get people to consume less alcohol. Uh, and then eventually evolves into the prohibition movement where they say you are no longer allowed to sell alcohol, right? So, so the temperance movement goes, uh, really begins after the War of 1812. Uh, you start to get temperance societies forming by the 1820s. A lot of developments in the infrastructure of America led to uh, easier transportation of grain that's been transformed into alcohol uh, through barges down to the cities, which led to a kind of a glut of whiskey, which led to cheaper whiskey, which led to a lot more people being drunk, which led to a lot more people being concerned about people being drunk. And, and so the, the temperance movement, temperance societies kind of grow out of that. The move towards legislating that uh, begins in the 1850s. You get states that pass statewide prohibition. 
that kind of dies down during the Civil War era and then picks up again in the, uh, at the end of the 19th century uh, and just kind of starts to build steam until it moves towards a, a push for nationwide prohibition, which finally, of course, culminates in the passage of the 18th Amendment. So on the local level, you get prohibition efforts start at the local level with uh, local cities and towns passing ordinances. A favorite in the early stages was to pass simply what they called a four-mile law, where you were not allowed to sell alcohol within four miles of a church or a school. Which in Waco is like everywhere. Exactly. And, and, and if you felt that it was not enough, you could always start a new church right on the edge of the, <laughs> the periphery of this boundary and expand it, right? And then from that, you move to just drying up the entire town, then drying up the entire county, and then push for statewide prohibition. So was it mostly religious groups that are pushing this sort of movement, or is it just a, a group of people? I'm not sure. It, it's a combination. It had obviously a lot of support from evangelicals who were concerned about drunkenness, uh, but also concerned about all the kind of social ills that went along with it, poverty and imprisonment and uh, people losing jobs because of problems with alcohol and things like this. When you get more into the era that we're more familiar with of thinking about prohibition, like the, the 19 teens and 20s, uh, it's also widely supported by, by religious and non-religious uh, moderates, progressives of the era. This is the progressive era. And they're not doing it some kind of moral campaign to try to take away everybody's fun, but, all, but more to try to reform society. The understanding is uh, that a lot of the social ills of the problem, poverty, and, uh, have their root in abuse of alcohol. And so if we can dry up the country, then poverty will decrease, the jails will be emptied, things like that. A lot of this had to do with what was happening to our men, right? I mean, women had a big role in the temperance movement, especially, right? Well, yeah, there's a big focus on family life, what's going on in the home. It's a unique movement because it, for the first time, did incorporate women's opinion and voices into this campaign. And so it's really the only issue. I mean, think about the, the 1800s and first couple of decades of the 1900s. There nowhere else could women come out and pub speak publicly before a crowd of men and basically tell men how to vote. Uh, that was unheard of. Or how to act. Exactly. Right. They would oftentimes stand outside of saloons and sing hymns and uh, kind of guilt men into either <laughs> not going in or, you know, or, or leaving. They would show up at the polling places. Uh, if there was a big prohibition initiative on the ballot, they'd show up at the polling places and, again, try to sway men's votes because they weren't allowed to vote themselves. You talked about the four-mile rule. Are there some other creative ways, steps they're taking to try to, during the temperance phase, where they're trying to limit uh, alcohol consumption, not, not necessarily eliminate it? Well, it starts off as kind of a moral suasion campaign, right? In the early days, it's just trying to convince people to drink less. In the early you know, 1820s, 30s, 40s, 50s, it was a big pledge drive. You would take the pledge and sign your name to a large poster saying you will abstain from, early on, it's just abstain from hard liquor, right? So uh, basically the distinction between uh, uh, distilled versus fermented. So if it's distilled, there's bad. If it's fermented like wine. Sorry, sorry Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. That's just an opinion. It's yeah, okay. It's just one, one person's thought. If it was fermented, then you could drink it in moderation. Uh, if it was distilled, you couldn't even be trusted to drink it in moderation. So, so you take a, a, a public pledge. You'd sign your name. By the 1830s or so, they start to just say, completely reject any consumption of alcohol, regardless of the type. Uh, the teetotalers, total abstinence from Alcohol, But again, you'd sign a public pledge saying that you would be a, a teetotaler from here on out. 
Like when you were hired at Baylor, you signed a sure, pledge. Sure, there's a big poster that, yeah. up. Yeah, 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 exactly. yeah, I understand. So, Andrew, jump in. I'd love to hear from your perspective as a distiller, just kind of your perspective as he talks about this early period, because we talked a little bit about the 19th century. So kind of do some of that background for us from your perspective. Yeah, so most of my background is actually more in bartending, but it's really interesting. A lot of people don't know this, but bartending was actually the first American cultural export. You know, in the early 1800s, people that saw, like, if you drove or, like, rode a day outside of the East Coast, it was very, like, rudimentary, like, people, like, living, like, very simple lives. All of a sudden, just in the East Coast, there's certain gentlemen, like, Jerry Thomas and Harry Johnson and all these guys started popping up, creating cocktails and, like, actually making a profession of it. Before that, it was a lot of, like, large format drinks, especially in England, and then just out of nowhere, like people started making like these drinks like to order. It's like a very American thing. It's like, I don't want to drink what he's drinking. I want to drink my drink the way I want to drink it. And there was like this kind of like air like celebrity, you know. And so like people from like all over the world would try to imitate American bars. And it was like this cool like first like real American like cultural export that we actually had. It's like the Levi jeans, you know, like the early 1800s. Um, so, so what are they drinking back then? Like what are some cocktails that are big? Back in that period, uh, I mean, a lot of the ones that are still big today, like old fashions, that's like the traditional. Did cocktail. they call it a new fashion back then? <laughs> uh, back then, they would actually just call it a cocktail, and it was like really interesting. You can also laugh if you want to, <laughs> if I say something. Uh, assuming you think I'm funny, that, that we have to throw in that prerequisite. And kind of like the old fashioned came about in the later 1800s when bartending became a little bit more developed. There was like all these like syrups and grenadines and like all these like different things. And there was kind of like this pushback from like the old guard of like cocktail drinkers. They're like, I just want a simple drink. You know, I just want an old fashioned cocktail. And that's kind of like the spirit, sugar, bitters, and more like the basis of a cocktail was like really solidified. And that's kind of how old fashioned is like, I want an old fashioned cocktail. And it's a way to assign to the bartender is like, I don't want any frills. Like don't throw any absinthe in my drink, no like citrus, none of this stuff. I just want to straightforward one manhattan's old fashions whiskey sours collins mint juleps like a lot of drinks that we still enjoy in like cocktail bars today so you, you tell me kind of the glory days for bartending were really the late 19th century can you talk a little bit about why that was the case i think a lot of it was just kind of like time so they, they developed this trade people like made careers out of it like saying you were a bartender was just as respectable as like being a doctor or a lawyer and people became extremely wealthy tending bar just kind of like there's like this refinement in the craft from like the late 1800s up until actually prohibition that's whenever like things were like really solidified as far as like technique spirits like there was lots of really great whiskey out there's like a lot of drinks back then were very like whiskey forward uh, it wasn't actually until Prohibition that more like the not so quite spirit forward since the quality of spirits had kind of like diminished. But it was also not necessarily accessible to like the everyday American. Like this is like, you know, those scenes of like Titanic where it's like all like the upper crust. Like that's really who was drinking in cocktail bars. Not even necessarily even women. Like they could drink in their own separate area. There was no like mingling except for certain types of women. But it was like very like refined. It was like these. What's that mean? I love how you handled that. That was uh, that was the best way to handle that. Certain kind. You think of these stories of like even like the nicest bars now, where you like see like these giant blocks of ice and like all that stuff. And that was just standard protocol back then, like for like the craft cocktail bars. And so it was like really interesting to kind of see how all that developed, and then how like prohibition just completely ended and like set cocktail culture back seventy years almost. So let's kind of talk about that. What does it look like for somebody in Waco in the South when they are looking to get a drink now that prohibition has gone into effect? A lot of it was really just kind of like 
you know, we all know about like speakeasies, stuff like that. A lot of it was like house parties. So a lot of people don't know that the consumption of alcohol wasn't necessarily illegal. It was the purchase and manufacturing of. Oh. So a lot of house parties and they also have these things called like blind pigs. So people would go see this animal, there's an attraction, you know, and they get a complimentary drink, but they weren't actually purchasing alcohol. So there's like ah. lots of ways, like kind of like side skirt prohibition. Governments always have an idea of like, if they make something illegal, make people not want to do it. Yeah. And then people just become more crafty. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Joe? Seems like there were a lot of uh, kind of loopholes uh, where, uh, you know, like you said, uh, the consumption of alcohol was not illegal. So there's a lot of like stockpiling in the, uh, in the months and year leading up to the actual enactment of prohibition and Volstead Act. Again, it's one of these things where if you were of a certain social economic status, you, you probably, at least in the early years, I think, didn't struggle as much to, to find ways to get a drink uh, that, that technically even was illegal. Yeah. Uh, it hits more the, the working class, lower class, uh, minorities. Some would argue that was kind of the point, too, that there was a lot of that a lot of the the temperance and prohibition and the later prohibition movement are kind of have a lot of elements of anti-immigrant sentiment, uh, racial sentiment, uh, class issues. That it's more about controlling the the leisure time activities of the working class or the immigrant class or the or uh, African Americans in the South. So I'm kind of interested. We kind of got going really quickly here, but I'm interested in what drew you to the subject of prohibition when you decided to start studying it. Uh, when I was in uh, uh, seminary, actually, uh, I was in seminary in Atlanta, and uh, you know how the seminaries go. There was, uh, uh, it was uh, I was working in the library actually in uh, at Emory University, and uh, was helping the the cataloging staff, and got assigned this. Somebody had given them this massive collection of temperance hymnals. There was just like a whole kind of. I'd never What's heard that like? It's like a whole subgenre of hymn. I mean, you know, hymnals like yeah, yeah. pew in front of you at uh, uh, church, right? Uh, these are just kind of a subgenre that they're they're generally small, maybe thirty to sixty hymns, uh, paperback, uh, all filled with hymns about temperance, okay. you shouldn't drink, and the dangers of drinking, and things like this. And so they would publish uh, hundreds of these published between about eighteen thirty and nineteen thirty for use at. Uh, temperance rallies, temperance meetings, revivals, et cetera, that were kind of geared towards uh, uh, temperance. So yeah, I was kind of fascinated with that, that this was such a, a significant subculture of American Protestantism in the 1800s and early 1900s. And, and that's part of what drew me in. And then I also kind of have, I think it's this kind of personal background of, of this always kind of being in my, my own story because I grew up in a very conservative Southern Baptist church in Tennessee and uh, where we were always you know, taught that, that consumption of any alcohol whatsoever is wrong. A sip of wine, you know, that's, that's sinful activity. And then at home, I, I, my father owned a bar. And so on the weekends, I would... Uh, <laughs> And it was it was it was one of these classic. It was, uh, this was like late seventies, early eighties. Uh, this, this is a home bar. This is no. Like this a, is this is an actual bar. This is and it wasn't a bar. It was a lounge. He owned a lounge, like a public lounge. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> like with a with a dance floor, disco ball band. The words wow. very dark and kind of seedy. Uh, uh, and so on the weekends, I would uh, my brother and I had to go kind of work there and you know stock the beer case and things like that. And uh, <laughs> so I kind of had these two. This tension of these two worlds, a uh, foot in both of these worlds. Uh, so I think I've always kind of been fascinated with the church's attitude towards alcohol consumption. Okay. Did you ever talk to your dad just about the idea of where he was on Sunday and what he was hearing on <laughs> Sunday and what he where he was on Saturday night and kind of how what he did with that? 
I mean, it was just, it was the, the family business. He was, you know, the business he had bought and, and ran. And uh, um, at the time he was, I mean, he worked really late on Saturday night. So he wasn't always there on Sunday, but uh, that was more <laughs> kind of my thing. I'd go and uh, uh, so, yeah, just kind of trying to, to make sense of these two different yeah. worlds. That's interesting. We're kind of getting into what Waco kind of looks like now. And so is there anything specific to Waco in Prohibition that's kind of interesting? So one thing that's interesting, the Southwestern Drug Building, which is near here, it's kind of catty corner here. Uh, in the bottom of it, it has a vault. And this, these weren't unusual during Prohibition to put the alcohol uh, in, the, in the vault because you could get a prescription for alcohol. Isn't that right? Isn't that right, Joe? Right. So tell me about getting a prescription for alcohol. What ways could you consume? Well, it's alcohol? another one of these uh, one of these loopholes in prohibition law. Both both the kind of statewide statutes that preceded nationwide prohibition, and then of course during the twenties itself, that you could find exceptions for medicinal use uh, of alcohol, for religious use of alcohol. So you could still serve wine at communion. Yeah, but you grew up drinking grape juice. For exactly. Communion. Yes, uh, I thought so. Thanks to a good Methodist layperson who. Uh, Thomas Welch, who... Uh, That's right. right. <laughs> so uh, what were some... You remember some of the things you get prescribed alcohol for in the 1920s? What sort of maladies were uh, worthy of prescription? I suspect that it depended on the doctor that was uh, I would think it's a, the script it's a wide you. range of maladies. Yes, I, I would imagine think. that it's... And it got wider uh, as the 20s went on. And again, but, it's one of these things where if you were you know, more well-to-do, you could have the family friend who's a doctor write you a prescription for something like that, you could have access to it much more easily probably than your average working class guy. Was one of those uh, prescriptions like social awkwardness? <laughs> <laughs> you need to loosen up. Here's, <laughs> take two of these. And. So many don't know, maybe some don't know here that the father of prohibition is actually a Texan. So Morris Shepard, I did a little research on this. So Morris Shepard is from a little county, one of the smallest counties in Texas, up in East Texas, who kind of pushes through, who wrote the bill that becomes the Volstead Act that pushes through and gets his prohibition, which is really interesting. Morris Shepard, who's from Morris County, at the end, I'll tell you if Morris County is dry or not anymore, because there are still five dry counties left in Texas, and I grew up in a dry county in East Texas, so there's a few dry counties left. Right, you still see, kind of, especially spread across the, the south and southeast, you see the the remnants of prohibition still today in this kind of smattering of dry counties, fewer today than even 20 years ago, of course. Well, let's get into the operation of prohibition. You, you talked about, Andrew, a little bit of how it kind of affects bartending and things like that and kind of yeah, you know, something that's kind of glorified, but the real story is different. That's kind of like how I came into like research and prohibition, kind of like from my aspect of it, you know, because like myself, like many people, you know, you like had this idea of like, you know, like the Roaring Twenties and like all these cool like bars and stuff like that. And the reality of it is like anybody that was really good at their job either left the country or found another job. And there wasn't like a lot of things aren't necessarily historically accurate, you know, nor is like recipes like for drinks necessarily just like meticulously cataloged. It's not like they're like cookbooks. So it was very much like this like apprenticeship thing. You know, I would work under a bartender who would teach me how to make drinks. And it was kind of like, you know, like these shorthand recipes that you'd kind of like pass on, but unless you kind of was able, were able to like decipher that information, you were kind of like going into it blind. So there was like a lot of these like misconceptions, like how even to make drinks, uh, which is like really interesting. But there was also these really cool like social developments from it, you know, uh, during Prohibition, that's whenever people started dating, you know, the idea of like courting and stuff like that was a little bit more different. 
also, especially like in larger cities, the intermingling of, you know, like African-Americans and, you know, like white people, like was a lot more loose and like, there was kind of like this like camaraderie, you know, you were both doing something illegal. So like a lot more common for people to like intermingle and stuff like that, especially at a time when that wasn't necessarily so much the case, which is pretty interesting, but. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. And I think the push, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, the, the push for prohibition was a very white movement. Definitely, yes. Yeah, talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's interesting. So if you look at before the Civil War, the temperance movement, uh, especially like 1830s and 40s, it was more a northern movement, more a white northern movement, uh, but it was really deeply intertwined with the abolition movement. These were seen as kind of the, the big twin evils of society, right? What are the two worst things in America in the 1830s? If you're in the north, you say, well, slavery and the fact that people drink too much. There's too much drunkenness, right? So these are the two big things we need to fix in society uh, to improve it. And, and Southerners were a little wary of, of the temperance and prohibition movement because they were so intertwined with abolitionism. In fact, uh, there were instances where national temperance organizations would send out literature like newspapers, and uh, sometimes they would slip uh, abolitionist pamphlets into them and then send them into the South. And then when people in the South opened up and found them, they got all enraged that this uh, material was coming into their, their homes. Uh, after the Civil War, it, it really flips and you have uh, much more support for prohibition in the South. And really that's kind of the home base of the, the prohibition movement uh, from the 1870s onward. And it does get tied in with a lot of racial prejudices and concerns about now freed African-American uh, men having these opportunities to go out and, and uh, uh, socialize and lots of fears about uh, that kind of equality. And, and initially, interestingly, uh, there's, a, there's a, a thought amongst a lot of these white evangelicals that I studied in, say, the 1880s, because so many African-Americans were also members of churches, there was kind of assumption, well, now African-American men at least can vote uh, they'll probably vote for prohibition because they all go to church, good evangelical churches, and so uh, that's the only you know, rational decision they can make, right, is to vote for prohibition. So in the 1880s, 1887, for instance, there are uh, several states, including Texas, that have prohibition, statewide prohibition uh, referendums on the ballot, and they fail. Uh, and from that point forward, white evangelicals say, well, Clearly, these black men are not going to support this movement. And that's when they start throwing their weight behind things like disfranchisement, um, which really picks up in the 1890s. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of tied to prohibition issue. That's interesting because we, we've talked about Jim Crow and I, I haven't thought about the prohibition angle. But, yeah, there's an element of that. How successful is it from your two perspective? How successful is prohibition? I guess I would say not very because drinking is like so much a part of our culture you know and like grand like back then they were like overly consuming i mean the amount of alcohol that an average person would drink would like boggle our minds like we'd probably be hung over for a few days and that was just kind of like common thing but there's also this element it's not even necessarily drinking there's like the social aspects of it you know like the only real reason we go to a bar like if you wanted to drink you would drink at home but there's that element of like socializing and getting to interact with your friends um, getting to meet other people like in your community, you know, there's like this uh, element of community that, that stems from a bar. It's very deeply ingrained in us. And also people like to get intoxicated. I mean, it's just people can choose whether or not, but whenever it's no longer have a choice and that is imposed on you, it doesn't necessarily work out that well. You'll end up having people like they did in Prohibition, you know, drinking vanilla extract and soda water. 
because it's a food additive. It wasn't regulated. Same thing with like bitters. So I think it was the great social experiment was an experiment that, in my opinion, was flawed. You can look at certain metrics and say, well, the, the instances of like liver problems and people dying of you know, certain diseases declines during this period and the, uh, you know, the alcohol per capita per consumption uh, takes a while to get back to like several decades to get back to kind of pre-1920 levels. But if you look at it from the perspective of kind of like the more of like a PR kind of side in terms of the, the stigma that's attached to prohibition, Again, especially outside the South, because in a lot of, especially Southern states, uh, once the 21st Amendment is ratified and, and a prohibition is re repealed, you still live in a dry state uh, for a lot of folks. So it takes a while for that to, uh, to die out. But it's very much seen as this kind of, uh, even though it started as, for, for a lot of folks, as kind of a progressive movement. The PR side of it, on the, on the, you know, on, on this side of prohibition is that it's this kind of puritanical effort to just take away everybody's fun and leisure time activity and, and it's kind of got that stigma ever since. My previous job was in the state of Mississippi and they're the last state to do away with prohibition. 1966 is how long prohibition. But the line was in Mississippi we staggered to the polls and voted dry. <laughs> so you know just that idea of how we want to think about ourselves in the south but how we actually want to behave and, and how we <laughs> operate in the south can be two different things. And you explained yeah. that a little bit earlier when you were talking about the duality. Right. There was this Southern white evangelical Christians as they began to, after the, so they lost the Civil War and had lost on the battlefield, but in kind of the battle for moral superiority, they were kind of always looking for somewhere to kind of have this, this upper hand over the, you know, those, those godless Yankees up there, right? So it also kind of fed that, like this kind of cult of the lost cause that even though we were defeated on the battlefield, we still are morally superior to our Northern counterpart. And so embracing prohibition, even if many of those voting for it were staggering to the polls, was still the, it kind of fed this sense of moral superiority. So what were some of the cracks in prohibition, like the people that were saying, maybe we should repeal this? One of the things that, that fuels the, the repeal push is the Great Depression. So you get this prior to the 18th Amendment, you get the 16th Amendment that shifts us more towards an, uh, a personal income tax uh, and away from tax on items such as uh, alcohol sales. When you have the Great Depression hit, you know, uh, that obviously hits government revenue from uh, income taxes. And so a lot of people start to say, hey, we need to go back to where we tax alcohol consumption, you know, uh, amongst other things, but because we need the revenue for that because we're in the Great Depression, right? So that's one thing that, that shifts it. And, and, and the sense that this isn't working, people are still drinking, it's fueling the growth of organized crime. So you have a lot of other things going on by the by the mid twenties that are uh, where it's starting to show cracks and people starting to turn against it. That's a good aspect. We haven't really talked about like what's the organized crime aspect of prohibition and, and the different ways that people are, are getting alcohol, you know, some of the moonshining and stuff like that. There's, I, I guess two main, and this is my, exactly my field of expertise, but, but I think That's two okay. main, yeah, I'll just make stuff up. Uh, <laughs> uh, two main sources. There's, there's the homemade, like the, the bathtub, gin or whatever. And then there's what's being imported from surrounding countries that don't have mm. uh, prohibition statutes for Canada, you know, the Caribbean islands, places like that. But you probably... Yeah, maybe Andrew can speak more to that. Yeah. Homemade liquor was pretty rampant, especially for the 
less well to do you kind of had to figure out a way to make your own that's also why you hear stories about prohibition of like people going blind and dying because they were consuming like wood alcohols and people were producing alcohol that didn't necessarily know that some parts of it contain like methanol which is like super not good for you to consume but yeah then you'd have people that would go to canada was very regularly visited and up until prohibition rye whiskey like american rye whiskey was actually the whiskey of choice uh, until prohibition was enacted and then when prohibition hit canadian rye started becoming more prevalent because that's people that's what people were bringing in you know people would go to cuba bring in rum the caribbeans so a lot of it kind of depended on your like geographical location and also kind of your economic and like social status as well as kind of like where that was kind of coming from and obviously all a lot of that all of it either corrupt politicians and or organized crime profited from it and i know the story of how those who would make kind of home-brewed alcohol would sometimes uh, take the bottle. I've heard this. They'd take the bottles after they were sealed and soak them in salt water so they would have kind of that smell as if they had been brought over by boat. <laughs> yeah. for, they had the, the smell of the good stuff, right? Yeah, uh, and a lot of it is, and that's kind of like part of like where like government regulation kind of comes in is because you had people, you were up to like their morality. So they would bring in liquor and then they would water it down or they would swap it out with something else. You know, they would try to like put lipstick on a pig. Essentially, they would like get like a Crown Royal bottle and then get like swill or even just like straight water and just like sell it to somebody or, you know, even something worse like poison. I'm going to be honest. The only stuff I know about prohibition is from watching Boardwalk Empire. So <laughs> is there anything else uh, interesting about kind of prohibition in the in the South and when, when it starts to actually maybe when it starts to get repealed and, and what's the push for that? Again, there were a lot of states in the South who, when they saw the repeal of, or when they saw the passage of the 21st Amendment, realized that they were still going to be in a dry state. And so in some sense, there's maybe this sense of, you know, we're not really losing that much. I mean, we're still uh, going to have that here. You know, this evil is still not going to impact us, that kind of uh, <laughs> attitude. So is that still why we have some of the holdover kind of laws, like you can't buy alcohol on Sundays and stuff like that? Right. All these you know, so-called blue laws that, that restrict sales, uh, you know, in varying degrees. And, and over time, like I said, these have kind of uh, either been completely repealed or keep getting kind of scaled back. There's always kind of a patchwork. And as you drive from one county to the next, you don't know, is this a county where you can buy a bottle of liquor, but not liquor by the drink? Or is it a county where you can buy liquor by the drink, but you can't buy a bottle of it? <laughs> yeah, um, or do you need a club? Do you need to join a right. club to get a drink? Yeah. Texas has dry, wet, and moist <laughs> counties. There's all these <laughs> moist counties that have odd laws like that. Well, even where I'm from in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, up until recently, I remember going to a liquor store and if you wanted to buy Jack and Coke, they were actually connected together because you couldn't sell Coke in the liquor store. So they had like these little plastic connectors that would hold it together. So you're buying it together because that's wow. the law. But not anymore. They've repealed that. So it's good. It's funny. Even still in West Texas, you can't actually buy hard liquor in a bar. You can buy beer and it's totally fine. Or you can walk the 20 feet to the liquor store buy a bottle and then bring it in there and then consume yourself. And that's funny. That's the town that's 20 minutes away and they still have some pretty archaic laws when it comes to consuming alcohol. It's pretty interesting. So I got a story about Morris Shepard, if we're getting to repeal in the 21st okay. Amendment. So, so Morris Shepard that I talked about earlier, who's elected to Senate in 1913 from Morris County, Texas. Look at it. It's a little teeny. It's the fifth smallest county in Texas, up in East Texas. So he's elected in 1913. He immediately pushes for prohibition that's passed in 1918. And when they put forward the repeal, the 21st Amendment to repeal prohibition, he filibusters for eight and a half hours. 
and no dry senator joins him to stand up and defend a prohibition from being overturned. And of course, it's overturned with the 21st Amendment. And the end of Morris Shepard's story is in 2016, Morris County goes wet. And Morris County finally caves <laughs> and becomes, as I said, there's only five counties now that are completely dry in Texas. So it becomes one of those, I won't say wet, I'll say moist. It, it's <laughs> right. not a prohibition county anymore. But well, all that's connected to uh, the desire for economic growth in a lot of counties, too, right? especially when you get like from the 80s and 90s. If you want a Chili's or an Applebee's in, in town, then you need to modify your, your archaic laws so that they can sell liquor by the drink. Both of you mentioned kind of the immediate after effects and the impact of prohibition. You talked a little bit about bartending, and Joe, you mentioned that as well. What do you see as some of the lasting legacies of, from your point of view, some of the lasting legacies of this social experiment we've been talking about. This continued stigma that nobody really favors the outright prohibition of alcohol anymore. That's just seen as it was an experiment and it failed and we're just never going to touch that again. You know, one of the interesting connections or conversations people are maybe having now is to think about uh, how it relates to movements being made in the country towards legalization of marijuana. You, know, you have like medicinal use of marijuana, that's okay here, or recreational use here, and, and, and the parallels that some people will draw between, between attempts to regulate alcohol in the past and our continued attempts to regulate marijuana today. And you do see some, some parallels, I think, in, in some of the arguments that are made on, in both directions. Andrew, you got thoughts on that? Kind of legacy of prohibition for bartending? I mean, it took really up until like the late 90s, like early 2000s for us to like bounce back. I mean, I'm sure like some of you guys have seen like the movie Cocktail. That was kind of like the I, I was going to ask you the first <laughs> bartender to put an umbrella in a drink. When do you think that happened? Oh, man, that actually would probably have been Don the Beachcomber. He uh, actually so it was <laughs> there's like, a guy that's known for that. Yeah, yeah. So it was like 1939, if I'm correctly. He actually opened up like the first like tiki bar, like kind of like that whole area, kind of like really like started this whole era of like tiki drinks and all that stuff so probably about around there and it really took off uh, post like world war ii it wasn't until like some gentlemen like Dale DeGroff and like david wondrick actually started going back into history and like reading these old books from like the late 1800s kind of like deciphering them and trying to figure out like what a pony of this means and like what a dash of this is and like there was no like real like oh do a half ounce of this it's like oh just a dash of this and like a pinch of that it was like very like kind of like your grandmother's recipes kind of style and so we actually were kind of playing catch up for a for something that we created which is pretty interesting like a good example of like countries that have surpassed us in like cocktail prowess essentially is like in japan like they have some of the best bartenders in the world just because part of like their culture and the fact that they were able to practice it with trained professionals while we were like kind of playing catch up for these like 13 plus years that we had prohibition. And then even the more, whenever we were trying to figure out, you know, past like Jack and Cokes and like old fashions with like cherries and oranges muddled in them and martinis with like no, no vermouth and stuff like that. So I do wonder what some of Waco's more conservative founders would think about the state of things now with all these breweries opening up, you guys, Balcones being here, being really popular. I mean, it's kind of swung the other way, I think, where it's kind of seen as a thing that a lot of people partake in and there's not much stigma anymore, it doesn't seem like. I mean, with all the breweries that are opening up, plus with Balconies, I feel like how you present the drinking environment is a lot different, you know, versus like we try to do like a craft whiskey. We try to like make something that's really great and we try to be more about the process and like try to put out a really good product and try to make it more about the trade and the craft more so than like to just get sloshed. You know, it's more of an experience. 
Yeah, you can go have a drink at the Baylor Club, which is still kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around a little bit. <laughs> not during game days. That's right. That's right. Not during <laughs> for game that, day. you have to go to the Balcones tasting room. <laughs> but you have kind of generational shifts taking place to even within like very conservative evangelical circles. I did a last year, I did a survey uh, distributed to a bunch of Baylor undergrads, 600 or so of them, and uh, was asking them. Uh, about their kind of religious identity, or they uh, identify as a fundamentalist Christian or evangelical Christian, things like that. And then within that category, I ask follow-up questions about alcohol consumption, and, and do you feel that consuming any alcohol is sinful? Do you think that it'd be okay to use wine in communion, things like this? And, and it's, it's fascinating, very few, if you like just narrow it down to like, say, Baptists who identify as fundamentalist, you'll still find like 80% who say it's okay to drink socially. This is 18 to 22 year olds. Of course, obviously if you ask their parents or grandparents, those numbers would be drastically different, right? So Yeah, but that's a big change. It is. And just yeah. a generation, that's a big change. And I think part of it is this kind of changing perception. I mean, I think a number of things going on, but part of the changing conception of, of what it means to go and to drink. I, I think there are class changes. It's not like have a, a lower class thing, you know, like maybe previous generations thought of it as. It's much more... Uh, socially acceptable, more more about the experience, like you're saying, not about just going and getting drunk. Yeah, I feel like there's been like this interesting shift. We as consumers now, you know, back then it was just kind of like, you know, it was meets to an end. You'd get whatever bottle. And now like people want to have like a personal relationship. You know, they want to know like where, whether it's their food is coming from, where their alcohol is coming from. They want to have like a personal relationship. They want to make sure it's something that's like sustainable and like ethically done, you know, to the best of their ability. And so I think people kind of like, that shift has been really interesting, kind of like making sure like we're sustainable and like we're actually, and it's not even necessarily the amount of alcohol they're consuming, but it's kind of like drinking well instead of drinking more. There's actually been a lot of studies done showing that people like younger generations are actually drinking less alcohol than generations before. But they, for those that do drink or when they do drink, they are very hyper conscious of where it's coming from. Like, is it sustainable? You know, is it something that's like ethically developed? And there's been like distilleries that have gotten in a lot of trouble, more so like in other countries, like their unethical treatment of like employees and stuff like that. And people kind of vote with their dollar and it actually like creates like a lot of changes, you know, for the betterment of like people that are working under what a lot of people would consume are like unfair conditions. So it's pretty interesting that cultural shift that's like happened in the last like 10 years or so. Well, I, I want to loop back around to prohibition, and usually Randy's the one to ask this question, but I'm going to ask it. And I'll start with you, Joe. Any spicy stories or racy stories you can tell us about prohibition <laughs> that kind of come to mind, things you've discovered in your research that, that kind of surprised you or shocked you or kind of stayed with you about the uh, American experience of prohibition or the Southern experience of prohibition? Well, I was always interested in, in, the, in what a drastic shift took place when white evangelicals, especially in the South, started to embrace temperance and prohibition because uh, you, you think of Baptists in the South and you think, well, you know, it's always been not much fun and not wanting people to drink and things like that. But but if you go <laughs> it back lead, it to leads the, to dancing, drinking. Leads exactly. To dancing. Yes. And we all know where that leads. <laughs> but if you go back far enough, if you go back to the late 1700s and the first few decades of the 1800s, it, it's commonplace for ministers, uh, Baptists and Methodist ministers in the in the South, which was more frontier region at that time, uh, to be paid in whiskey. To, there was uh, one pastor who I liked who was a uh, he was part of this group known as Hard Shell Baptists. They were very kind of hardcore traditionalist Baptists, but not conservative as we would think of it in, on this matter. They uh, and, and didn't like the idea of people telling them they couldn't drink, and so he had a, a walking cane that was hollowed out, had a screw cap on it, and kept alcohol, kept whiskey down in it, <laughs> and uh, would take breaks during his sermon and unscrew the top and 
lift this big cane up and uh, take a swig, keep on going. So, so it kind of breaks the stereotype, you know, uh, and, and kind of tells you how drastically religious culture in the South, especially evangelical culture in the South, shifted uh, during the 19th century to where you go from that to by the end of the century, you can't even have wine and communion services. There you go. Stephen knows me so well. I was waiting for the story of the pastor with the cane full of whiskey. That's what, that's what, <laughs> that's what Randy, that's all he wanted. Yeah. Uh, I guess one of my more interesting stories is actually kind of like a family one. So in speaking to my father, I learned, so like my dad and his family are from Chicago, like Arlington Heights area, and they lived there for years. And my great grandfather, he wasn't necessarily in the mob per se, but he, uh, Allegedly, you know, but he, you know, rubbed elbows with some guys that were influential in the time where like money was not necessarily as prevalent, kind of like towards like the tail end of prohibition. He would help swing votes. He would like go through and he'd like pick out dudes like in soup lines. And he'd like, he's like, you know, they'd give him like three bucks a vote. He'd give him a buck. He'd like have him shave, go back through again uh, and actually like paid for his brother's way into the fire department. This is at a time when if you wanted any kind of like service job like that, you know, you had to kind of like pay your way in. I think it was like pretty cool, like to like have something like that in my family history. Maybe not, maybe I'm not the most reputable family, but it's, okay. it's more fun, better yeah, stories. Yeah, you know, it's like something to tell my son one day. Both you guys have skeletons in the closet. That's great. That's good to know. <laughs> All right, so I think that'll kind of wrap us up. Let's kind of talk about each of the things you guys are doing. Let's start with you, Andrew. You're at Balcon. It's kind of we have a lot of people that listen that aren't from Waco or passing through and are visiting. So kind of tell us about Balcones and what you guys do there. Uh, so we're a grain to glass distillery, which essentially means that we actually, all the whiskeys and spirits that you guys see, we actually produce ourselves. We pride ourselves on the production from everything from the grains that we use to how we approach fermentation, the brewing process, distillation, uh, even the barrels that we select. We work with a really great cooperage out of Lebanon, Missouri. And you just like come in, like a lot of people have this misconception about balconies that it's just kind of like you have to have reservations or in like that or it's just like you have to have an appointment to come in it's like at the end of the day like if you want to just come in and have a drink you can have yeah. a drink i mean you're because we are a distillery and there are certain weird archaic laws stemming back from like prohibition that are still still around, still around a little bit you know we can't have outside liquors you know mm -hmm. so as long as you don't mind drinking really awesome whiskey uh you'll be in like no, and you shouldn't yeah no absolutely uh we also offer like tours by reservation so it's a lot of fun. We're always doing like different events. Like every Friday we have a first Friday event. So we'll always debut like a cocktail, either have like live music or a food truck or a combination of all those things. Just trying to like be a part of like the downtown community, like really help trying to be a part of the revitalization of downtown that's been really been happening in the last few years. It's been being from Waco has been really cool. I mean, I remember being a child here. And not even, you only went downtown to pay your water bill. Yeah. Like, that was it. So it's been really cool seeing this change over the last few years. On a personal note, I just love Baby Blue, and I have that on hand at all time. Well, thank you for the job security. I <laughs> yeah. appreciate it. Excellent. All right, Joe. And you have some books and some writings and some stuff like that going on? Uh, I do. I, well, I did my, uh, my research, uh, uh, first book on the temperance movement and prohibition in the South. And... Uh, have a chapter book coming out. Uh, Louisiana State University uh, Press is coming out with a book sometime in the spring to kind of coincide with the 100th anniversary of 18th Amendment actually taking effect. That is a, a collection of 10 essays dispelling uh, myths about prohibition. And so uh, the chapter I wrote was on uh, the myth that uh, prohibition was strictly kind of spearheaded by religious kind of puritanical forces uh, that, and, and kind of talked about the, the role of progressive thought in supporting prohibition because it was kind of a, a strange issue at the, 
you know, 1910s and 20s, that it was the one issue that could kind of bring liberal and conservative Protestants together. They could kind of agree that, that this would improve society. So I've, I've got a chapter of that coming out, and I teach uh, yeah, here at Baylor. And it's a special day for you as well. It is. <laughs> You've chosen to spend your 50th years birthday. Old, yes. Yes. 50 Excellent. years old today. <laughs> you should have a drink. <laughs> May. Well, you know, you, you know why you take two Baptist fishing, don't you? <laughs> so they don't drink all your beer. Yeah, if you take one, he'll drink all your yeah. beer. Yeah. <laughs> There's all right. other jokes I won't tell. <laughs> all right. Well, I also want to thank the Dr. Pepper Museum for having us out here in this live event, kicking off their spirited exhibit. So come out and check that out. It's really fun and interesting. And how late is that going to run? Um, what's the time frame on that? Okay, here until January the 7th. So come out to the Dr. Pepper Museum and check out Spirited. All right, thank you guys for coming and thanks for being a great audience. Thanks again. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. time ago, as he dropped the guns that she hated, in the muddy Brazos below Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'll walk straight in old San Antonio Then the night came alive with gunfire He knew that at last it'd been found As the ranger's badge showed brightly El bandito lay on the ground Carmela knew he was dying That all of her dreams were in vain As she kissed his lips for the last time she heard him whisper again Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio I'm safe when I reach San Antonio